You're listening to Hematopoiesis, a new podcast by the American Society of Hematology Trainee Council. In 2020, the ASH Trainee Council embarked on a mission to create a new online platform for hematology trainees that represents the entire diverse spectrum of budding hematologists from medical students to residents to fellows and doctoral students. With this new podcast, which is entirely curated and produced by the ASH Trainee Council, we hope to bring exciting educational and career-focused hematology content to you and the community of hematology trainees around the globe. I am Dr. Lachelle Weeks, former chair of the Trainee Council and hematologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I hope you've been enjoying hematopoiesis so far. We're right at the end of our three-part series on blood transfusion history. If you haven't checked out the first two episodes, trust me, hit pause and go back and check them out. The journey to answer one question, how do we safely transfer blood from one person into another, has intersected with so many discoveries in other fields, such as transplant surgery. In this third and final episode, blood transfusion, blood politics, and modern practice, we're going to wade through some socio-political controversy that taints this fascinating historical record. At the end of episode two, we started to talk about Dr. Charles Drew, the brilliant and well-respected African-American physician scientist who became the first director of the United States National Blood Banking System that we now call the Red Cross Blood Donor Program. But the whole blood that Dr. Drew would donate to the Blood for Britain program that he started was not considered suitable for transfusion into white soldiers who were on the battlefield. And he was unable to donate plasma because the segregation of pooled plasma was impractical. Yes, blood products earmarked for wounded soldiers, like the military units themselves, were segregated. Surgeon General James McGee put out a statement during World War II, which said, for reasons which are not biologically convincing, but which are commonly recognized as psychologically important in America, it is not deemed advisable to collect and mix Caucasian and Negro blood indiscriminately for later administration to members of the military force. I continued my conversations with Dr. Yvette Miller, an executive medical officer for the American Red Cross, and Professor Douglas Starr, Professor Emeritus of Boston University School of Journalism. So how the Red Cross came to be in that space regarding the segregation of blood is that the U.S. military had approached the American Red Cross to supply blood to the armed forces. And it was the policy of the U.S. military to segregate blood. So the Red Cross was put in a difficult place. We had agreed to provide blood to the armed forces, yet there was this policy of segregating blood. So in our commitment to supply the blood, then that's why we honored that policy, because of our commitment to the U.S. military. By the way, people were outraged. It wasn't widely accepted. And the Red Cross, they didn't believe in this stuff either, but they just thought, you know, it's a crisis. We're at war. Mm -hmm. Can we just sort of sidestep this for now and deal with it later? Student groups and civil rights organizations, such as the NAACP, spoke out against this significantly. Poet Langston Hughes wrote a column about it in the Chicago Defender. Red Cross memos did note that blood segregation was a matter of tradition and sentiment rather than science. But the reality is that blood segregation policy persisted for an embarrassingly long time in the United States. 
The Red Cross officially did away with the policy in 1950, but some hospitals, also segregated and mostly in the South, used separate shelving and refrigeration systems to racially segregate blood products. Louisiana was the last state to fully abolish this practice, and they did so in 1972. Here's Dr. Miller. From the work that you know I have reviewed, it was in the late 40s and early 50s where the policy was definitely, I wouldn't say reversed, but that policy was done away with. So again, like everything, there are different stories about when that policy absolutely was retired. But again, from the research that I've done, it was in the late 40s and early 50s when that policy was officially retired. Right. And we know just from even, you know, politics that things can be sort of changed on paper and in the official record, but people (laughs) and institutions are sometimes slower to adopt things and change shift paradigms for a lot of reasons. Dr. Drew did not leave the Red Cross because of the segregation policy, because he had actually left the Red Cross before that policy was instituted. And what is little known is that he was only in that position as a chief medical officer for just a very short time, just literally just months before he left the Red Cross and went back to Howard University because he was getting you know, increasing responsibility at Howard. Now, I will say that the version of Dr. Drew's resignation story that I grew up hearing and that circulated even by Smithsonian affiliates, such as the National Museum of African American History, is that Dr. Drew resigned just months into his post because his protests against the non-scientific and racist policy of blood and plasma segregation were not enough to move the federal government and military to change their practice. Dr. Drew went on to become the head of Howard University's Department of Surgery and then chief surgeon at the university's Freedman's Hospital. Tragically, though, at the height of his career and the young age of 45, he died in a fatal car crash. The myth was he was in a car accident, which is true, heading south, and then he was in a car accident in North Carolina, and he was brought to a white hospital and that the doctors refused to treat him, refused mm-hmm. to give it. And that's not true. Right. The doctor recognized and was in awe of him, rounded up every unit of blood in the hospital, called the Duke Medical Center, did everything they could, but he was he was fatally injured. The record here is quite clear. Black doctors with Dr. Drew and his family have all confirmed that the hospital made every effort to save his life, but his injuries were just too grave. Professor Starr and I discussed how racism, particularly anti-Semitism, hindered Germany from making advances in transfusion that were on par with places like the United States and Britain. America really blasted forward in the science of hematology as did England. And the part of the reason we did is the same reason we went forward into other sciences is the anti-Semitism of the Nazis. So they persecuted the Jewish doctors and they either killed them or chased them out. And some of our best scientists were Jewish and came from there. Mm-hmm. And the other thing they did, instead of looking at blood as an anatomical substance, they almost went medieval. And they started seeing blood as a sign of racial purity. Right. And they made these insane maps showing where different blood types originate and how different blood types made you more suitable to be courageous or to be a businessman. <laughs> One German scientist said that blood type B means you sit longer on the toilet. It was insane. <laughs> So, number one, they killed or drove off their best hematologists who came to America. Number two, they totally subverted the science into something crazy. And number three, all they had was donors on the hoof, and they said you could only get blood from pure Aryans. Mm -hmm. And even Berlin, there were not that many pure Aryans. Right. 
it was very common for American medical units to come upon wounded German soldiers in hospitals completely bled out. They just didn't have transfusion. Yeah. Uh, and the Japanese were that way too. So it must have been tens of thousands of lives in terms of a strategic difference. This reminds me of what Dr. Kamara Jones says about racism. It saps the strength of the whole society through wasted human resources. I had to get Dr. Miller's perspective on the lasting harms of blood segregation. Do these historical affronts contribute to lower rates of donation in minority communities? So let's just talk a minute about what the donor pool looks like in this country. Mm-hmm. The Basically, 80% of the blood supply in this country is donated by Caucasian. And it's multifactorial. Why communities of color in general have, you know, sort of less, I guess, impetus to donate blood. And it's because, you know, communities of color are challenged. There are multiple competing priorities for their resources and what they need to live sort of their best lives. And blood donation is important in communities of color, just like they are in the Caucasian community. But it is not always convenient to donate. You know, a lot of folks from communities of color are basically frontline workers in some of the lowest paying jobs. And so they don't have the opportunity to take time off work to go donate blood. So it's not convenient in that way. So there are some challenges in communities of color, specifically um, the African-American community, that doesn't always make it easy to donate blood. We care about donating blood, but it's not always easy. And so while we do always have some focus on sort of that historical trauma that the African-American community has been subjected to, you know, what prevents people from donating is what their lives are today in this moment, struggling to meet the needs of their families and putting food on the table and working and trying to be the best parents that they can be. So those are some of the challenges and historical trauma has its place, but it's what's going on in people's lives today in this moment that doesn't make it so easy for them to donate blood. Historical trauma or not, structural barriers and inconvenience are things that actually can be addressed to improve donation rates. I guess you could say, why does it matter at all? Well, race is certainly not biology, but people belonging to certain racial groups may have commonalities in terms of heritage, and because of this, certain blood antigen phenotypes can be more prevalent in certain racial and ethnic groups than they are in others. One example of this is the Rh-positive haplotype RO, which is more common among people of African descent. Charles Drew, the Red Cross Blood Donor Program and blood segregation bring us to about the 1950s. Transfusions had become quite safe, cross-matching was routine, preservatives and fractionation then improved shelf life. The mid-20th century also brought universal infectious disease protocol. First, there was syphilis. The Wasserman reaction became available in the early 1900s, and the first case of transfusion-related syphilis infection was in 1915. There were nearly 140 cases reported by 1940, and around that time, it became standard practice to screen donors for syphilis. Implementing the screening protocol was quite effective. The last case of transfusion-related syphilis in the U.S. was reported in 1966. Transfusion-associated viral hepatitis was also a major concern. Those screening protocols for hepatitis B weren't implemented until the early 70s, and widespread hepatitis C screening didn't begin until much later in the early 1990s. But it is in the mid-20th century where observations of transfusion-related transmission of bloodborne illness foreshadowed the HIV epidemic to come. 
people started to pay a bit more attention to where blood products were coming from, drawing connections between outbreaks of hepatitis and paid rather than voluntary blood donations, for example, or observing clusters of infections in certain social and ethnic groups. Blood really began to resemble another natural resource, namely crude oil. Mm-hmm. You know, fractionation of blood was like the cracking of oil, oil. Mm-hmm. and component therapy became popular. The other thing that was happening is transplant surgery and heart-lung operations used a lot of blood. It was like the gas-guzzling cars of their day. <laughs> and the other thing was people were moving to the suburbs from the city, but the big hospitals were in the city. So you started having blood deficits. Mm-hmm. And really, it became a question in our country, how do you get enough blood? Do you make pleas to people? Do you pay for it? How can you do this? And this became a problem from the 50s well into the 60s and right. the 70s. So what happened was by the 60s in America, and each country was different, but at least in America, the notion was whole blood was something you gave for free, mm-hmm. sort of developed that way. And you could give whole blood safely about six times a year. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the plasma industry really took off, you know, with gamma globulins and different vaccines. I mean, plasma is a great source of material and you could safely give plasma about a hundred times a year, twice right. a week. Okay. Now, nobody's going to want to do that. So it became accepted practice to pay people for their plasma donation. Mm-hmm. What this did, however, and this would attract people like college students, but it also increasingly attracted people from disadvantaged parts of life. And not only that, for-profit blood and plasma dealings was an invitation for exploitation. It's like there was this period of time when all medical specialties were like, let's experiment on or profit off of incarcerated people. Actually, many major medical innovations intersect with exploitation of the vulnerable or bigotry or discrimination, and hematology is not exempt from this. Professor Starr told me about Austin R. Stowe, a physician and Freemason from Oklahoma who opened up a plasmapheresis center in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary in 1962. You had asked about prisons. Mm Mm-hmm it became popular in the South to collect plasma from prisons. Mm -hmm. The reason is that some of the most valuable plasma was hyperimmune globulins. Mm -hmm. And you could get that by either finding somebody who had had a disease or giving them a mild dose of the antigen. Now you could give somebody on skid row a mild dose of an antigen and hope that person shows up a month later, or you could go somewhere where they're not going anywhere. There's a captive audience. This became unfortunately popular, and there was one doctor named Austin Stowe mm-hmm. who sort of had a deal with half a dozen prisons throughout the South in which he would you know, give people an antigen and a while later go back and collect hyperimmune plasma. At one point, he supplied 25% of the hyperimmune plasma in the country, wow. but he ran a sloppy operation and there began to be some hepatitis outbreaks. Mm-hmm. As I also mentioned, the books, then the blood the plasma collectors moved to other places like Central America, mm-hmm. and South Africa. So in this case, instead of going for oil wells, they would go for poor people who had pretty decent proteins in their blood. The hemophilia community bore a significant burden of the infections that stemmed from operations like Austin Stowe's. What folks with hemophilia did, and it's interesting, at some point in the book, and I got to know people because they had these big conferences, they started correcting me and they said, refer to us as people with hemophilia, not hemophiliacs. Mm. And they said, because we are not the disease. And I said, all right, I get yeah. that. <laughs> it's interesting. You know, you develop a, a knowledge and a sensitivity. Hemophilia is an X-linked recessive inherited bleeding disorder that is caused by severe deficiency in clotting factors eight or nine. And the worst part isn't cutting yourself and bleeding. It's bumping yourself and getting a joint bleed. 
mm-hmm. which apparently are terrifically painful. Yeah. And also after several of these, the acid in the blood begins to eat away at your joint. So there's a very characteristic walk called the hemophilia limp because mm-hmm. the pelvis has been eaten away. Right. Early right. on, they would do things like put people in the snow when they're having a bleed to slow it down. And then eventually they would transfuse people with whole blood. And then I guess it was what in the 50s or 60s, fresh frozen plasma. And the whole plasma became a thing because it contained the factor eight. Mm-hmm. And then cryoprecipitate mm-hmm. was developed by Judith Poole. And in this case, a few units of plasma were put together, were pooled, and it made a cryoprecipitate, which then could be you know, hydrated and put into the uh, person suffering an attack. This generally had to be done intravenously in the hospital. And then finally came the factor eight concentrate, which was the miracle. And this came in a small bottle and you could proactively inject it and live a normal life. And it really was a miracle. And I talked to folks with hemophilia who, by the way, have subsequently died of age. And they said, look, this was our beginning of life. I could go camping. I could go hiking and take this with me. Mm -hmm. The disadvantage was in order to make this, now they would pool not just a few units of plasma, but thousands So folks with hemophilia became the canary in the cave, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Any contamination was magnified through populations of thousands. And again, this is something that people began to figure out before HIV. Brian Johnston was born with hemophilia. My name is Brian Johnston. I'm 53 years old. I was diagnosed, I think I was seven days old when I was jaundiced at birth. They did a heel puncture, did not stop bleeding, and that's when they found out they tested, obviously, and then they found out that I had hemophilia. I'm also um, a severe factor, eight deficient with an inhibitor. When I was six, I fell on the kitchen floor. I had a blood clot on L4, L5, and that left me paralyzed from the waist down. Actually, Highland Baxter flew out factor nine specifically for that operation because it was just coming out. Like, I don't even think it had, well, it had been improved because we used it, but I think it had just come available at that point so they flew it out for my operation it was supposed to be the last thing on the plane so it'd be the first thing off the plane they forgot to put it on the plane oh my gosh <laughs> so my dad's sitting at the airport waiting for this to come off the plane it doesn't come off the plane the next plane they flew it out the airport police drove it to the boston line the boston cops picked it up drove it to the Brookline line the Brookline police drove it to children i was already in the OR, already on the table at this point so wow were like you we have no choice we're going ahead the other big highlight was in 2014 i had a port for factor and it got infected it was systemic and everything sh- I, my lungs shut down kidney shut down everything i was on a vent in the icu for 50 days wow i don't know if i was told this before and i just didn't remember it or not but i was talking to eric dr eric parnas is brian's hematologist at brigham and women's hospital and I think it was this last admission when I was in for the operation for the ulcer. He came in and we were starting to, we talked about that admission in 2014 when I was in the ICU. And he's like, oh yeah, I remember you, you had a cerebral bleed and we were giving you factor every two and a half hours around the clock for like three. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, time out. I do not remember being told that. Now, they may have told me that and I was still in La La Land. I don't know, but wow, I was like, whoa. So yeah, that one was interesting because I was, it was close. Right. So close that they actually told my parents to go make arrangements for me. Brian and I talked for a while. He told me about his family. His mom, a nurse, is a carrier, and he is the only one of his siblings affected with hemophilia. His description of his upbringing really highlights that he has been a person living with hemophilia and is not defined solely by his disorder. 
Eventually, our conversation about his life got to the 80s. The dicey time, yes. The dicey time, exactly. Um, yes. Could you kind of talk us through, you know, your experience going through that time? Yeah, in the beginning, obviously, we didn't, you weren't really told or anything, you know, like, I, at least I don't remember being told anything until I think it was like 82-ish, which would have been like around my freshman year in high school. As I said, Dr. Beardsley, she called me in and she said, listen, I got to test you for this, but the amount of factors you've taken over the last three, four years, I'm guaranteeing you're going to come back as positive for this virus. So she explained to me what it was and all of that. And obviously I'd seen stuff at that point was Ryan White was all over the TV and Ricky Ray and the Rays down in Florida who had their house burned down, all of that. So I'd been aware of all that. So I knew kind of what it was. And then she kind of explained everything else to me. And uh, as I said, I, I distinctly remember that conversation with her where she brought me into her office and I'm like, okay, let's do this. And then luckily I never had any real opportune infections. My numbers got to be really low just at the point where Crixivan, which was the first protease inhibitor, became available. That's when I switched from children's to the Brigham. Is Dr. Uh, Jed Berlin. I don't know if you heard that name before. He's, I think he's out in Minnesota running a blood bank now. But he said to me, he said, listen, I think you need to transfer over now because you could get into their study. They're not doing them here at Children's and I'm probably not going to do it for a while. So that's kind of the impetus where I went over there. Dr. Paul Sachs, who's my ID doc, he tested me and you had to be under 42, I think, T-cell count to get in that first study. And I came back at like 45. I ended up getting pneumonia, but it wasn't a funky pneumonia. It was just a regular, everyday, normal person pneumonia. So he comes running into my room. At the, I remember this too. Running into the room at the Brigham. He's like, we're going to test you right now. I guarantee you you've gone down. Let's test you right now. So he tested me and I came back at like 35. And he said, bingo, you're in. So, and then from then on, numbers went up. G-Silk went up. Viral load went down. HIV affected a large percentage of the hemophilia population. And the death toll in those early days was quite high. Three or four kids that I grew up with, same age bracket. We all went through, back then you used to go to clinic and you'd all wait around to get called in. Now you didn't really have a time appointment. You just show up that day and it took first come, first serve. So we all kind of would hang out together in the waiting rooms and we all got to know each other and they all are not here. I was the only one out of that group of my friends that I knew that made it through. They all died of age-related issues. I don't remember exactly. Brian says he's lucky. You know, I say that to people, and they're like, lucky, what, what have you been through? I'm like, yeah, but I'm still here. My instinct was to blame the for-profit motivations for this outbreak, but like everything, it's complicated. It's important to note that other countries that did not have for-profit got hit just as bad as we did. Hmm. So I'm no fan of capitalism. Yeah. I don't think that was the issue. I think but it was it the technology. Yeah. Uh, they were starting to screen people. Even now, a lot of plasma donation is for profit. To me, one of the most interesting cases was France. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, I actually moved to France for a while to attend the trial of the doctors involved in that. I speak the language, so that was helpful. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. What they did was when, so they were very proud of the fact that they had harnessed plasma sort of as an industrial product, and they mm -hmm. were producing a lot of factor eight. And when it became contaminated, the guys in charge, instead of throwing it all out, said, look, we've got to save these people's lives. Let's reserve the contaminated plasma for people who already have been tainted by it. Mm. They didn't think, well, maybe we're giving them an extra big viral load. 
Right. And this was considered a very unethical thing. And there was a big trial. But at the same time, there was another reason that HIV rates were so high in France, especially in Paris. And that was because they were overly idealistic. Hmm. That was really interesting. So before and during World War II, donating blood in France was considered a real act of being a good person and participating in the social context to the degree that they would collect whole blood from prisons but not in the way that our guy in Oklahoma did, but it was seen as a way of helping prisoners feel part of society. And it was considered an honor. Mm. And they would give the prisoners a sandwich mm. and they would gladly give blood because it meant that they were still considered honorable parts of society when they got out. Yeah. And at one of the prisons outside of Paris, the prison doctor noticed that they were having high rates of HIV and hepatitis and nobody would listen to him. So the real bad rates in France were from whole blood, from free donations for idealistic reasons. Yeah. So it's interesting, wherever you go in the world where they had bad HIV rates, and I don't know anywhere it was spared, right. you could find a different flaw in their system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the other thing was the Europeans didn't collect plasma for profit, but they never could collect enough. So what they did was secretly buy it from the Americans. So the Americans were paying people and then quietly selling it to Europe, who was very self-righteously saying, we don't pay. <laughs> so it's kind of complicated. It's, it's all complicated. Yeah, it is absolutely. very complicated. And the complications don't end there. At the intersection of ignorance and fear, we can often find bigotry, stigma, and discrimination. Brian and his family avoided it by only disclosing his status to people who needed to know. And one of the things we did is we never told anybody until after I had graduated high school. I see. Now, the nurse at the high school, as I said, my mother was a nurse. She knew the nurse, and the nurse knew I was positive. But since I never told her, she had no obligation to go and tell anybody else. Mm. Kind of like the wink, wink, nod, nod type of thing. So, you know, we talked about it around it type of thing. You know, a couple of times she asked me, is there anything that I need to know or, you know, and she kind of couched it more on the hemophilia aspect, but I knew what she was asking. Right, right. I got cut and bled on the floor. Like, well, what kind of precautions did they have to do? And in fact, then, you know, there was a lot of hysteria about it being in tears and saliva and all that stuff. And like I said, the six or eight guys that I'm still best friends with to this day, I did not tell them mm. until we graduated high school. Mm -hmm. And then I called all of them up and I said, but I want to go out to dinner, cook them all out. I forget where we went, like a Chili's or something like that. And I told them all in that dinner and a couple of them were like, oh, we already know. But the stigma wasn't just reserved for people living with hemophilia. Opportunistic infections and Kaposi's sarcoma were observed in men who sleep with men, communities of IV drug users, and some vulnerable immigrant populations. If you view newspapers from the 80s through the lenses of today, you will probably cringe reading headlines about gay immunodeficiency syndrome or gay cancer. By 1983, the National Advisory Boards of Hemophilia Foundations and Plasma Industries began to call for excluding people who identified as men who sleep with men, as well as IV drug users and Haitian immigrants from blood donation. Professor Starr and I spoke about some of these exclusions. It actually took a while because the FDA people and their colleagues didn't want to seem prejudiced. Mm -hmm. And the, the gay community was up in arms that you're targeting us. So it really took a while. And then they kind of went overboard and the regulation began, if you have ever slept with a man in your life and you're a man, you can't give blood. Mm -hmm. So it became an overshoot and it became a very complicated thing. Mm -hmm. And I remember there were some very sad cases of somebody who would get blood from a whole blood transfusion and the donor didn't know that he wasn't supposed to give blood. 
At around 2000, I remember I wrote an editorial for the LA Times saying this lifelong ban on gay donors is quite enough at this point. Dr. Yvette Miller gave me some insights on the Red Cross position. That time, again, was a very painful time in the history of this nation, and specifically, again, for the MSM community and some ethnic groups. So at that time, we didn't know exactly how the virus was transmitted. What was known was that it was at higher percentages in the community of men who have sex with men. And so that community, you know, and their lifestyle was targeted. The MSM community, though, they were very active in terms of being blood donors. And so when this policy was put in place, it just put them sort of in another painful place where people were saying that, you know, their blood was not good enough. According to Dr. Miller, while a lifetime ban on donation was perhaps draconian and maybe a bit overkill, in light of a novel virus with no cure and inadequate testing, at the time, it was thought to be the most reasonable course of action to safeguard the blood supply. You know, the FDA and blood collection organization just, again, kept excellent data on the infectious disease rate in that population. And over that time, while we were also looking at the data, the testing methodology and the science behind HIV was being elucidated. And so I certainly understand the feelings and the political action and the advocacy of the MSM community because, you know, testing was getting more and more sensitive. And with the advent of nucleic acid, testing, we were at that place where if a person was infected with HIV, it was basically a 10-day window period where back when that policy was instituted, we didn't really have good tests. And the window period was something like 60 to 90 days because we were basing it on serology and not on DNA. A lifetime ban lasted from September 1985 to December 2015. Retrospective analysis of data from 1988, Blood Donation Rules Opinion Study, showed that the prevalence of HIV infection in men who slept with men was actually orders of magnitude lower than the estimated prevalence. And in December 2015, despite significant improvements in HIV testing that reduced the window period, the time where an infection might exist but might not be picked up by a test, to around 90 days or even 10 to 30 days for nucleic acid testing, which is what is used to screen blood products, men who slept with men were still only able to donate blood if they abstained from sex for 12 months. So as we fast forward to last year, in April 2020, the FDA decreased the deferral policy from one year to three months. We could see how quickly the FDA could work because we've had you know, years and years of looking at that data. And now we understand that that community is definitely at lower risk based on the testing that we perform and all of the other things that are in place the questionnaires and all the questions that we ask about risk behavior. So we knew that we were at a different place. And so we went from 12 month deferral to a three month deferral. And again, the FDA is still looking at that information and certainly still now, you know, getting that pressure to even remove that three month deferral. So that arc of science and advocacy are still, you know, meeting in a space where we're still considering just removing that deferral altogether, but we're not there yet. And of course, in a time where testing has improved and data on transmission have matured, we now know too much about HIV transmission to know that it is actually quite ignorant to assume that homosexual intercourse between two men is somehow inherently more risky than heterosexual intercourse. 
And this isn't just my opinion. In the UK, the Health and Social Care Secretary announced in December 2020 that donors who have had one sexual partner and have been with that partner for more than three months will be able to donate regardless of their gender, the gender of their partner, or the type of sex that they have. Donation bans based on country of origin appeared to blame certain countries and immigrant groups for the outbreak of HIV. In 1983, people who immigrated from Haiti after 1977 were banned from donating blood. 1977 was the year that the epidemic was believed to have started. In 1986, the U.S. excluded donations from people immigrating from Central Africa and then Sub-Saharan African countries in 1988. Then, in 1990, the rule changed such that all Haitian immigrants, regardless of year of immigration, were banned from donating blood. It's hard not to notice a pattern, and thousands of Haitian Americans protested in 1990, pressuring the FDA to reverse the ban. And although these bans have been lifted in favor of questionnaires that inquire about a person's individual risk factors, exposures, and travel history, the stigma remains as textbooks and board exams still train medical professionals to associate people from these places with HIV. Today, blood is tested routinely for HIV, viral hepatitis, HTLV, syphilis, Babesia, West Nile, and Chagas disease. Dr. Ross Heron, a Divisional Chief Medical Officer for the American Red Cross Blood Services, told me all about how blood goes from donor to shelves to hopefully a recipient in need. Well, I'm Ross Heron. I'm the Divisional Chief Medical Officer for the Pacific Division and the Southwest and Rocky Mountain Division of the American Red Cross Blood Services. In the regions, our physicians are responsible for investigation of recipient complications, consultations with the transfusion services we serve in those geographies, their immunohematology reference laboratory, CLIA lab directors, and they're also involved with donor reaction management, donor eligibility, and a lot of things that are regulatory as well, because in blood banking, not only are we a service organization, we are a pharmaceutical company preparing biologics. We have multiple levels of safety built into the process. And so the first level of safety actually is educational material we provide to the donor to read about whether it's safe for them to donate and is it safe for them to give their blood to somebody else? And so will the recipient be okay? So they're required to read the educational material. And if at that point they decide it's not safe for them to give to somebody else, either because of their own health or they're worried about the recipient's health, they're free to leave at that point. So then after that, we ask a health history questionnaire. It's about 50 questions. And and it addresses risk behaviors, essentially, that individuals could have or travel history and medical conditions. And if they pass that history, then they go to the next phase, which is a mini physical, where we do a pulse, blood pressure, and temperature to make sure they're uh, not febrile. Once they've done all that, they get their blood drawn, and that blood then has samples drawn at the same time. The samples come back to the manufacturing lab along with the blood products. We use a centralized testing system. So there's a few five labs across the country that we use, and we then send those samples to those laboratories. And we test it for ABO, RH, a red blood cell antibody screen, and a bunch of infectious disease markers. So HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, HTLV one and two, Trypanosoma cruzi, the parasite that causes Chagas disease, in certain locations, Babesiosis and Zika, and also West Nile. I left the West Nile. So I think it's either 12 or 13 infectious disease tests that we do on yeah, each yeah. donation. And with COVID, was there is there any COVID testing of blood products that's occurring, or because it, that's not a major route of transmission, is it something that's not tested for at all? 
For COVID-19, the blood itself is not tested for evidence of virus. Essentially, we don't do any viremia screening because it's a respiratory infection. There's not really a viremic phase that you have to worry about in the bloodborne transmission of it. So that, that's not been described. What we do worry about, though, is individuals coming into our site that might have COVID. So we have special precautions with taking temperatures before they come into the site. We ask a series of questions before they come into the site to make sure they haven't had any risk or been exposed to somebody. We all stay six feet apart at the blood drives. Everybody wears masks. So you say, well, how can somebody stay six feet apart and draw blood from somebody? <laughs> you know, we, we limit as much as possible being right. in close contact so that nobody is within six feet of anybody for uh, like 15 minutes maximum tops. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and also we space out our blood drive beds now a little bit differently in the days of COVID. So that's to protect our donors and our staff and our volunteers at the site. If somebody develops COVID after they've donated and they call us back on our 1-800 number to say, hey, I got sick and I got COVID, we will retrieve that unit of blood, even though there's very little likelihood that that unit of blood would have virus in it. The other thing we do currently is we're testing individuals for antibody to COVID-19 or antibody to SARS-CoV-2. And we do that for a couple of reasons. One is we need to have convalescent plasma donors. And so we can find convalescent plasma donors by testing for the antibody. We also recruit donors who have recovered from clinical cases of SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. And then we get them into the program. But we test everybody for antibody to SARS-CoV-2 currently. And we'll probably do that for a little while longer at least. The Red Cross is the largest blood supplier in the U.S. Each region or each section of geography that we serve has something we call districts and they're donor recruitment districts. And so we have donor recruitment individuals who will go out and recruit businesses, social clubs, other types of organizations, high schools, colleges when they're in session. Um, and they will arrange for blood drives to be held and help to sign up donors along with the volunteer coordinator for each blood drive. And then the other things that are done in the same geography is we recruit donors by either telephone, the blood app, which is on mobile phones, both iPhones and Android phones, and also by email and text message, we'll recruit donors to come in and donate blood at our fixed sites and also somewhat into our mobile drives, which are held at the organizations within the community. So that's sort of where it starts. And then from that collection, the blood is then transported to a manufacturing facility where it's made into components. The testing is done for the infectious diseases and the ABO and RH type and a red cell antibody screen. And then once all those test results come back electronically from the testing laboratory, the units are labeled for distribution or they're put in quarantine and destroyed. And so that happens all across the United States each day in the Red Cross. And as you mentioned, we are about somewhere between 40 and 45% of the blood supply, depending upon the year. And so we are the biggest blood organization in the uh, United States. We have probably, we like to have about 80,000 to 100,000 units of red blood cells in inventory across the nation on a regular basis. That's about a three to five day supply. So we have to, you know, collect somewhere between 20 to 30,000 per day. And then we have apheresis platelets as well, which we collect at fixed sites using an apheresis instrumentation. And we collect upwards of, uh, well, about 950,000 apheresis donations per year. So there's quite a few of those that have to be collected yeah. each day as well. The shelf life of platelets, they're maintained actually on an incubator that's also a rotator as well. So they have to be in constant agitation, maintained at room temperature. So they're maintained on an incubator that's monitored for room temperature. And they're only good for a shelf life of five days, most of the products we collect. 
There are some platelets which can be extended with additional testing up to seven days. So their capability of going to seven days. But most of the blood products across the country that are platelets are a five-day product. Mm. Uh, red blood cells are 42 days with the current additive saline and a coagulant and nourishment that they have that we provide in the collection containers and storage containers. And so they're either usually 35 or 42 days. 35 days are for CPDA1 anticoagulants. It's just a little less shelf life for those. Sometimes used for pediatric patients, CPDA1. And then frozen plasma is made from whole blood donations or from phoresis donations. And if it's frozen within eight hours, that's fresh frozen plasma. If it's frozen within 24 hours, it's considered PF24 or plasma frozen within 24 hours. Those are the types of transfusable plasma we have. And that's a shelf life of one year. Mm -hmm. From plasma, you can also make something called cryoprecipitate, which is taking a plasma unit that's frozen, putting it in the refrigerator. So in the cold, in the cryo, there's a precipitate that occurs, a sludge that occurs. When the supernatant becomes liquid, there's a sludge at the bottom, and that's cryoprecipitate, and that's high in factor eight and in fibrinogen. So we make cryoprecipitate individual units and cryoprecipitate pools of five as well. So that's also good for a shelf life of one year. And then for rare red blood cells that have antigen profiles that are rare in the population, we will take those from a liquid state and we will then add a cryoprotectant and freeze those at really cold temperatures. And those are good for up to 10 years and that's for licensure. You can even extend it beyond 10 years with a special medical need if it's rare enough, because there are a couple types of rare blood cells that only a few donors in the world have them. And so, you know, we have those stored and when they hit the 10 years, we extend them another 10 and we'll use them for special need. Wow. Yeah, so when we collect blood, you know, everything's got that shelf life we have to worry about. So in our national inventory management system, we will try to move it around to a place where it's gonna get used so it doesn't outdate on the shelf. We try to have three to five days of blood supply on our shelves across the country. We like our hospitals, if possible, and they're willing to, to have five to seven days worth of blood products on their shelves. Mm -hmm. So that way that gives us kind of a buffer to not have severe shortages on a regular basis. So we collect with those goals in mind, and then almost all the red cells are used for transfusion unless they uh, had to be quarantined and destroyed because of positive test results or some other cause of deferral, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, there is a small amount of outdating for those because, you know, you can't be 100%. If you didn't outdate a little bit, you would not have an adequate supply for everybody when they need it. So you, there is going to be a little bit of outdating. It's like any perishable, actually, in the supermarket, kind of. You have to have fresh fruit, right? But, you know, some of it's going to outdate, unfortunately. And so that happens on occasion. Now, what we try to do with that outdated product is provide it to companies that need it for reagent purposes, where they have red cells that they need to make into reagents for laboratory tests. Mm -hmm. And then plasma, we don't need as much plasma as we have red cells. So about a third of our plasma goes for transfusion into patients. The other two thirds goes to what we call fractionation. So it's called recovered plasma, and it goes to fractionation companies you know, pharmaceutical companies making plasma derivatives like intravenous immunoglobulin and albumin, things like that. And in the old days, they also made factor eight from that, but now everybody's getting recombinant factor eight. So there's no market for the factor eight protein for the most part. So we don't, you know, for plasma for a year shelf life, plus the ability to have alternate places to put the plasma, including also reagents for plasma as well. We don't outdate too much of that. The toughest one is platelets. 
five days shelf life, maybe seven, five day shelf life. It, it takes about two and a half days to get the product labeled mm -hmm. into the hospital. That gives them about two and a half, three days tops to transfuse it. So in order to cover the zigs and zags of patient demand, they kind of need to have an adequate inventory. And that's going to mean a little bit of outdating for that. And unfortunately, that's where we see the most outdating of our products. But it's a, it's a necessity because otherwise we wouldn't have enough blood products for everybody. And so we're clear, the blood you might get in the hospital, those donations are volunteer-based. For transfusion purposes, so whole blood and apheresis collections that are for transfusion purposes, it's all volunteer blood supply. We do have some research donors that come in for special research protocols, and they're collected and paid for their time to be on a, an apheresis instrument for a number of hours, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, same thing goes for uh, something called Leucopax, which are also an apheresis product, and so we do pay our donors for that. But for transfusable products, things are going to be transfused to patients that's an all-volunteer blood supply. In 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic swept through the world, and unfortunately, it's still here. The need to physically distance and limit unnecessary in-person contact, as well as fear about contracting COVID, strained an already tenuous blood supply system. All around the world, blood banks were reporting 25 to 50% reductions in their blood supply. Maureen Zuzovich is a recruitment program manager for the Kraft Family Donor Center here in Boston, Massachusetts. And incidentally, she herself is a recipient of donor plasma. Here's Maureen. In April, we kind of shut down everything, and the blood mobile especially, and the Kraft family actually let us set up. I had contacted someone over there, my contact, and they actually let us set up in Gillette. Gillette Stadium is in Foxborough, Massachusetts, and was used for outdoor and socially distanced COVID-19 testing, and also served as a makeshift site for the Kraft family blood donor center. We could set up, we brought in beds, we were set up there, from April through July 31st, and then training camp come in, so we had to get up. And during that time is when I was sick, but, you know, I, I kept working even when I was sick because that kept my mind off it. I had something to do when I, you know, I chose to keep doing what I do. In 2020, in the middle of the pandemic, Maureen was diagnosed with a rare kidney disease that required plasmapheresis. And she even had a few red blood cell transfusions. So she kind of got to see the other side. I was brought upstairs to a room. There was the people that were from the other side of our offices where, you know, the blood donor center is cut in half, whole blood on one side and plasmapheresis is on the other. And there was the group there with the machines ready to transfuse me. And they immediately started, you know, hooking me up, explaining what they were going to do. I called them my angels because, you know, I remember Esther, who worked there, looked at me. You know, I knew a lot of their faces, but I didn't know, like, a lot of them personally. Because I'm not in there that often. I'm a recruiter that's on the road, and I work from home. I usually go in for meetings, like, on Wednesday. So it's not like they saw me all the time, but they did see me. They knew who I was. And they, you know, she made me feel comforted to the fact that she says, you're one of us, we're going to take good care of you, which was very emotional for me. And they hooked me up. And I remember, you know, the plasma, my plasma being removed and plasma being put into me. My plasma that was being removed was just a very nasty color brown because I was full of toxins at that point. And I knew, you know, looking up, I said, oh, that's not good. And she said, no, that's, they told me that's 
toxins and we're gonna it's gonna get better you know as as we do this it'll get better and it did you know it took weeks but you know my my plasma coming out was getting lighter and more healthy looking but i was being transfused a few days a week like i said eight bags of plasma it seemed you know even more i think i never really counted but i remember thinking all the bags they have lined up there and they would be transfusing me you know at least three days a week and that went on even i was in the hospital almost a month or three weeks and then went home and i was still coming back and forth for plasma transfusions I've had a couple of pints of blood when my hematocrit went low and it was, yeah, it was within a few weeks. It was while I was in the hospital. Twice I had it. Mm -hmm. uh, they gave me a pint of blood. Yeah. And I, like I told you, the most amazing thing was the fact that it takes 10 minutes to donate a pint of blood, less than that most times, mm -hmm. but it took three hours to put it back in me. And I was amazed at that. Like all these years, that's the one thing I didn't know about blood. <laughs> And I guess that's why I fell in love with hematology. We've traveled from ancient Egypt to 14th century Europe through world wars, the HIV epidemic, and COVID. And after all of these years, there's still so much to learn about blood. Every two seconds, a blood product is transfused. And every day, over 43,000 pints of blood are used. And we have yet strides to make in scrubbing away the bias and ensuring equitable and safe access to the most commonly performed medical procedure for all persons throughout all corners of the world. Thank you all for sticking with me through that epic history of blood transfusion. Even in three episodes, there are so many things that we didn't cover. But after listening, hopefully you're inspired to learn more. If you're interested in donating blood, you can go online at americasblood.org and find a local donation center such as the Kraft Family Donor Center near you. You can also directly contact the Red Cross. Go to redcrossblood.org and sign up there. Put in your zip code and it will bring up blood drives that are close to that zip code so you can donate. And we have a wonderful blood donor app where when you download the app, you can actually use the app to make your appointments. And there's a lot of good information as well that comes through that app. We're still testing for COVID-19 antibodies, so you can get your antibody test results through the app. And then you can always call 1-800-RED-CROSS. But the most important thing, as Maureen says, Everybody should try to give blood. There's always a need for, you know, people will say, oh, I, I don't have that, you know, important blood. They're all important, believe me. When you have somebody that needs that blood, it doesn't matter. We need to have blood in the shelves. There are a lot of times O-Neg. We're always looking for O-Neg because that's a universal donor. But like I said, if you're healthy and able to donate, please donate. I want to thank all of my guests, Professor Doug Starr, Professor Emeritus of Boston University School of Journalism, Dr. Sunny Zeke, co-director of the Massachusetts General Hospital Blood Transfusion Service, Dr. Yvette Miller, and Dr. Ross Heron of the American Red Cross, Brian Johnston for sharing his personal insights about living with hemophilia, and Maureen Zuzovich of the Kraft Family Donor Center here in Boston for sharing how the process of collecting blood was impacted by COVID. This series could not have happened without their insights, opinions, and reflections, which brought this fascinating story to life. A special thank you to the staff of the American Society of Hematology for production work behind the scenes, and thank you all for listening. Tune in for future episodes of Hematopoiesis, a podcast brought to you by the ASH Training Council for hematology trainees. 
and be sure to read the hematopoiesis newsletter. Upcoming episodes feature discussions of women in hematology, ASH trainee grants and programs, careers in systems-based hematology, and more on the history of our awesome field. Thanks again for listening.